Today we return to the topic of a theology of time. You may remember that before the pandemic hit, we were doing this, and then there was Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday, and then we looked at Habakkuk. We didn't finish the series, so the Lord willing, uh, t- today and next Sunday, we will uh, try to wrap up this series on a theology of time. Sometimes, in reading scripture, one comes across a passage, usually an extended one, which has a listing of persons, number of people, names, and genealogies. And one is tempted to question the value of such a passage. In fact, when we read through the Bible last year as a church project, uh, when we came to passages like Leviticus and Numbers and now First Chronicles, um, can be sorely testing sometimes for the hardiest of readers. Paul tells us that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All scripture. But one may wonder at times. And if we're not careful, wonderful lessons will be missed. Just a side note, in my academic research, I face a similar issue. Most of my research deals with documents that on the face of them, in fact, are just boring, just dry as dirt. They're notarial records, petitions, bills of sale and stuff. But there is much to be learned from them. And such is the case with our text today. Beginning in verse number 23, we are given uh, some numbers of the men. uh, Saul has died. David has actually been king for seven and a half years in Hebron. Uh, in, in Judah. And now people from the north part, north of Hebron, come down to make David king, to turn the kingdom over to him. Well, if you look at verse 23, these are the numbers of the men armed for battle who came to David to Hebron to turn Saul's kingdom over to him, as the Lord had said. And then we hear a bunch of numbers, perhaps discouraging to even the hardiest of readers. Um, Verse 24, men of Judah carrying shield and spear, 6,800 armed for battle. Men of Simeon, warriors ready for battle, 7,100. And it goes on and on. And if we're not careful, we will miss something that should jump out at us in verse number 32. Men of Issachar, who understood the times and knew what Israel should do, 200 chiefs with all their relatives under their commands. In our series on a theology of time, we've come to the point about what are we supposed to do about time. And we have seen that our calling as the people of God is to redeem time. Moses wrote in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Paul wrote to the Colossians in chapter 4, walk in wisdom toward them that are without Redeeming the time. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. The King James has redeeming the time, and that's what I've read. The ESV has making the best of time. The NIV has making the most of every opportunity. I actually prefer the King James here because the word that Paul uses in Greek for redeem is the same word he uses for the work of Christ. In Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. 
to buy back, to redeem. It's the same word that he uses in the Colossian passage. And then when he says redeeming the time, the word he uses for time is chiron. That is time as a significance of a moment versus chronos, from which we get chronology, which is a succession of linear moments. The example that I used before that always comes to mind for me is that of a wedding. Chronos is the time the wedding is to take place. Kairos is the event of the wedding itself. What we find in what Paul writes to the Colossians are three aspects of the Christian life. How we are to live, okay? We're to walk in wisdom, he tells us, our ethics. Secondly, we are to redeem the time. And then thirdly, what it is that we are to say. Let your conversation be always full of grace and seasoned with salt. The issue of redeeming the time is the hinge. It is the pivot point of these three things. Jacques Ellul, in his book, Presence in the Modern World, the French subtitle, because he wrote in French, is Problems of the Post-Christian Civilization. This is what he writes. So we cannot avoid considering this idea of redeeming the time for the very reason that it is presented on the level of the Christian situation, and not just its theological aspect, at the center of the Christian life, as being the particular and decisive Christian function that encompasses all that we have said to this point. In any case, these texts, this Colossians 4 and Ephesians 5, show us that there can be no separation between preaching and behavior. So how we live, that's the behavior. What we say, okay, our conversation, preaching if you wish, but the hinge on which they both turn is that of redeeming time. The reality is that redeeming time is a central factor that ties it all together. Um, there are those who would focus on one, on your behavior, that you need to dress a particular way, you need to act a particular way, that is your testimony, if you wish. And others would focus on what you're supposed to say in witnessing and evangelizing. But the reality is they both hinge on the idea, the principle of redeeming the time. The church has lost this, though. The church has lost its calling, or a sense of calling, to redeem time. In part because many people focus on eternity. That this, we're just passing through, um, and so let's focus on eternity. Or they think of time in terms of symbols. Um, they forget the reality behind the symbol. So today is Sunday, the first day of the week. It's the Lord's Day. It's Resurrection Day. And for many people, it simply becomes a symbol, and they forget the reality behind it. We have to ask ourselves and others, did Jesus Christ, the Son of God, really rise from the dead on the first day of the week? Or is this just some symbol that we imitate Sunday after Sunday? Did he send the Spirit on the day of Pentecost? By the way, last Sunday was Pentecost. and In all the chaos, we've forgotten that it was Pentecost. In other words, did Jesus enter time, or did he simply symbolize time for us to celebrate? I would say no. That time is real, and Jesus did rise on the first day of the week, and Pentecost really happened. There are two questions that have to be answered in the light of this. 
that is, that the church has lost its sense of calling with regard to redeeming time? How are we to recover a sense of the call to redeem time? And how are we to redeem time? What are the practical implications? How do we do this? The how-to, if you wish. So let's start with the first question. How are we to recover a sense of the call to redeem time? To answer this question, we have to go back to the beginning of the series and first deal with other questions. What is time? The key to this matter is to recognize that time is a creation, something that God created. And as such, it is gift. It is something that God has gifted us with. What God has created, space and time, are gift, and they are to be received with thanksgiving. I don't know that we ever thank God for time, but we should. But unlike other things that are created, time cannot be shaped or reshaped. In the material world, we can create create or recreate, we can make things, we can shape or reshape things. One can cut down a tree and make any number of things, a wall, a floor, a table, a chair, paper, it goes on and on. This is not the case with time. We can use time well, but we cannot recreate it into something else. In the material world, uh, one can occupy a part of creation exclusively. In other words, if I'm here, you cannot, where I'm standing right now, you cannot be in the same space. I occupy the space. But no one occupies time exclusively. We are all here at this moment. We share this moment. Life, or time is never stationary. It moves and it moves in one direction only. It is unstoppable. As with God's other gifts in creation, time can be abused, it can be distorted, it can be misused, and in fact it has. We saw this earlier in the series. We live in a series in which the present is privileged over the past. don't really care what happened in the past. And an imagined future, whether dreaded, you know, dystopian or utopian, is sometimes even privileged over the present. But let's, let's, let's establish here that we, should, we do think of past, present, and future. But they should never be divided. Os Guinness, in his book Carpe Diem, um, I'm sorry, Carpe Diem Redeemed, writes the three faces of time are one and indivisible. That's past, present, and future. They are one before God. And they are far more intertwined and omnipresent in our lives than we often realize. Time is not infinite, okay? It is limited, but it is also limiting. In the same way that one cannot walk through solid matter, we cannot move backward or forward in time, even though it is stuff of many books and movies, we cannot, in fact, time travel. The reality is we are stuck, if that's the right word, in the present. Memory can connect us to the past, imagination to the future, but the reality is we live in the present. Then we also need to recognize that time has been affected by the fall. It has become a burden. It is frustrating in the same way that the ground resists our efforts. Time also can become a source of great frustration. But then this leads us to the most important aspect, 
time can be redeemed as all of creation. So that's a preliminary question. Another one, and we looked at this earlier in the series, is how do people view time? And we saw that there are at least three dominant and very different views of time, the cyclical, the covenantal, and the chronological. The cyclical view of time says that, you know, life is short, you can't get everything done that you want to do. And so you're not only here once, you get to come back again and again and again. This presents an entirely different view of existence. It holds that time and history are cyclical, they go in cycles, and we all experience successive incarnations. In a sense, everything comes back to the place where it started. I mentioned this when we looked at this earlier in the series, but I would point out that a cyclical view is not a particularly personal view. I see it as highly impersonal, that it is much more akin to a mathematical formula, that a being is, in fact, more akin to a calculator. That's what karma is about. You're either gaining points or losing points. But as a being, as a consciousness, yeah, it's not there. It's just somebody punching in numbers by your behavior. People try to disguise it by using words like transmigration of the soul or the spiritual principle of cause and effect. Yeah, it's just math. It's just a mathematical formula. The second view is a covenantal view. Most people don't realize that this is what is sort of the basis of Western civilization. The three faiths that come out of Abraham, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, see history and time in a radically different way than the cyclical view. The Abrahamic view claims to be the result of revelation, not reflection. That is, someone outside of us has in fact disclosed and revealed to us time, what time is about. So the major difference between the covenantal view and I would say other views is the idea of revelation, of God revealing, rather than of us sitting somewhere under the Bodhi tree and reflecting and coming to a different perspective. In this view, God is free and we are free as well. We have a freedom that is really beyond our comprehension. It is precious, it is unique among life forms on this planet. There are a lot of implications, but let's start with the one that time and history have meaning. We are exceptional, we are unique in God's creation. We have both self-consciousness and awareness of ourselves. And a consciousness has an awareness of time. We can stand back and view time to a certain degree. The remote past, the immediate present, and the distant future, even though we are stuck in the present. We have this freedom because of what God has given us as human beings. We have an awareness because we have memory, an awareness of the past. We have an awareness of time, which includes imagination and vision, which allows us to think of the future. But we also have an awareness of time that includes will. Therefore, we make decisions here and now. 
This is because time is a creation. It is a gift. And God has created us in his image and gifted us so that we can have an awareness of time. The third view of time is the chronological view. And in many ways, it is very similar to the covenantal view. In fact, I would say it is a ripoff of the covenantal view. It is the covenantal view without any belief in God, transcendence, eternity, or the supernatural. You have a succession of linear moments with no meaning. It becomes an endless tick-tock of the clock. It is chronos and nothing else. The covenantal view, on the other, way, on the other hand, is, is pregnant, is rich with kairos moments because under God, it is God who gives meaning to time. The drama of history takes on a deeper and a higher meaning. And here's the crucial difference between the biblical view, the covenantal view, and other views, is that God is the source of meaning. I think being Christians here and now, one of the great dangers that we face is that we are tempted to embrace the, cover, the chronological view, not realizing how radically different it is from the covenantal view. We are fallen. We are by nature rebellious. And though by faith, in Christ, we have new life. We still have the old person in us that is pulling us more to a chronological view which doesn't need God or, or belief or faith or eternity or anything like that. One writer put it this way, we can accept time as a given and study its passage and measurement, but we have difficulty coming to terms with time itself. Defining time is a problem for autonomous men. In fact, fallen man sees time itself as a problem because it is a constant limitation on him. The naturalism of modern science after Darwin has given man a felt need to understand the nature of time and in some cases to pursue its conquest. Time then ceases to be a given, a moral parameter of creation. It's no longer a gift. It's no longer something God has given us but rather a metaphysical or philosophical problem. Yeah, let's talk about, this is a metaphysical issue rather than recognizing it as, this is gift, this is something that God has given to us. Okay, the second question is, how are we to redeem time? I would argue that before we can correctly answer this question, we need to understand the world, the context in which we live. I'm going to quote from Elul again, and listen carefully if you would as I do. The world's will is always a will to death, a will to suicide. This suicide cannot be accepted, and we must act precisely so that it does not occur. We need to know, therefore, what the present form of the world's will to suicide is in order to oppose it, to know how and where to direct our efforts. The world is not capable of preserving itself or finding solutions to its spiritual situation, in parenthesis, which governs everything else. 
the world carries the weight of sin and is the domain of Satan, who is leading it away from God and thus toward death. This is all that it can do. Well, on the face of it, this sounds rather harsh. We say, Jacques, yeah, yeah. You know, this, this book came out in 1948. Things, you know, after World War II, pretty hairy. So you, you seem rather pessimistic. But think about this. And I, I would say if there's only one thing you hear in the sermon, this is what I want you to hear. And it's not particularly about time, but it is important. If God is the source of life, if he is life, okay, then when one turns away from God, who is life, one is turning to death. It's life or death, and God is life. And if one turns away from life, then one turns to death. And that turning is a form of suicide. If you seek answers apart from the giver of life, you will not get the right answers you will only find death. And I th- we really need to think about this as Christians. It, it sounds really harsh. It sounds like we're being very judgmental against other people. Um, in the hymn, Immortal Invisible, in all life thou livest, the true life of all. Do we, in fact, believe that? That God is the source of life. And when people turn away from God, they turn to death. So, In the words of Elil, we need to know, therefore, what the present form of the world's will to suicide is. How is the world trying to kill itself right now? In order to oppose it, to know how and where to direct our efforts. This ties in with our text. Men of Issachar, who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. And that is the context within which we begin to answer the question, How do we redeem time? We saw earlier in the series that, in fact, we can and we have redeemed time. We can redeem the past through forgiveness and repentance. Think about Israel. They came out of Egypt. They go to Mount Sinai. They receive the law. They had good reason, a lot of reasons, four centuries of reasons to hate the Egyptians. They had been enslaved. The Egyptians had acted toward them deceitfully and cruelly. They had oppressed them. But Moses tells the Israelites in Deuteronomy 23:7, do not abhor an Egyptian because you lived as an alien, a sojourner in his country. They'd say, yeah, Moses, as slaves. But the reality is there is to be forgiveness and the past can be redeemed. Jesus tells us, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and do good to those who hate you and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and bless those who curse you and pray for those who persecute you. Having been freed by God for Israel, it was out of Egypt. For us in the new covenant, we have been freed from our sins. We have been called to be a community of free people. And to be free... We must redeem the past by repentance and forgiveness. Justice must be pursued with an eye to the possibility of genuine repentance, genuine forgiveness, and genuine reconciliation. The past is always present. It is always with us. It's certainly not dead. 
But what forgiveness and repentance can do is redeem the past by pulling the poison out of it so that the past no longer oppresses us in the present. It no longer kills the present, but liberates it. It frees it to move toward the future. It has been argued for this to happen, there must be repentance. And repentance requires a change in thinking. We must admit that we have done wrong. We must confess that we've done wrong and accept responsibility. And then there needs to be transformation. That is that we are not to repeat the things, the wrong things that we have done in the past. A change of heart, a change of mind is to have occurred. This is all well and good, but what if the person who did wrong does not repent? What if they're not sorry for what they did? And what if they keep on doing it? We are to forgive anyway. I want to be clear about this. Evil and wrong deeds are never anything but evil and wrong. And we need to identify and see them as such. But evil and injustice can be contained and to some extent changed through forgiveness and repentance. You know, we find ourselves at a point in, in this country's history in which forgiveness apparently is not an option for many people. Um, so one of the reasons I wanted us to sing Amazing Grace today it was written by John Newton, who was a slave trader before he was converted. He repented of his actions and he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, extolling the grace of God. But I wonder if he lived today, if people would forgive him or if they would always throw it in his face. He had repented. God had forgiven him. God in his amazing grace. We live in a time where what one has done in the past is used to bludgeon an individual, and even ostracize or expel them from polite society. And in that sense, time is not redeemed. The past remains oppressive. There's another way in which we redeem time, and we saw this also earlier in the series. In the present, from the beginning of the church, the Christians have had their own day. That is Sunday, the Lord's Day. And this goes back, in a sense, to the Old Testament on Sinai, when the Sabbath was set aside. It's to be a day of rest for God's people, to be a day for his people to learn to trust him. What are we going to do if we don't work seven days a week? Well, God will take care of you. And so we find in the fourth commandment, it is the longest of all the Ten Commandments, uh, this is what is said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, shall have no other gods before me. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The Sabbath in this account here is a reflection. It is a looking back to creation and a recognizing that, in fact, 
The Sabbath day, as with all days, is a gift. It is something that God created. We are to share in God's delight of creation. It's interesting that when we have the Ten Commandments repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5, um, the focus is not so much on creation, it's obviously there, but it is rather on them being enslaved. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. It points to freedom, redemption from slavery. But an equal reality is, you know, as the Israelites were slaves for four centuries, the world is enslaved to sin. It is in revolt against God. And so God sends his son to redeem creation. And it was on the first day of the week, the first day after the Sabbath, that Jesus was raised from the dead. And thus it became the day on which Christians would meet together on what one Roman magistrate, Pliny, called a fixed day. But somewhere along the line, centuries ago, the church lost sight of a covenantal vision of history um, for various reasons. The mystics, for example, with mysticism, there's no interest in time. That's, that's irrelevant. The salvation of one's soul needs no calendar. There's a sense of the, the holy versus the profane. No, resurrection happened on the first day of the week. It was a transformation, not of the calendar, but of time itself. The time is being redeemed. It is through that event, when Jesus was raised from the dead, that all days, all time is transformed. It now becomes times of remembrance and expectation. Jesus has come, that's in the past. We live in the present. Jesus will come in the future. Every day, every hour now has acquired an importance. It is for remembrance and expectation. Every day now is a step closer to when Jesus will return. In some sense, and I want to be careful how I say this, Sunday is not a separate day, a sacred day apart from all others. Every day has significance because every day is a gift from God as time is creation and God's gift for us. The church's failure to see this and embrace this truth has allowed the world to secularize its view of time and we shifted from a covenantal view to a chronological view. So how are we to redeem time? In his book, Carpe Diem Redeemed, subtitled Seizing the Day, Discerning the Times, Osgenes writes, as we have seen already, repentance and forgiveness are the key to redeeming the time in terms of the past. And notions such as Sabbath and sabbaticals are a key to redeeming the time in terms of the present. But what of redeeming the time in terms of the future? as carpe diem is usually understood. God calls us in the flux and flow of time and history and the gift of being, and the gift of being able to seize the day. It flowers from a form of life that weaves together three principles. 
walk before God, read the signs of the times, serve God's purpose in your generation. What does this mean? To walk before God, to read the signs of the times, that does tie in with our text, that the men of Issachar did this, and then to serve God's purpose in our generation. The Lord willing, next Sunday we will look at this. These are the keys, I'm convinced, to redeeming time. Centuries ago, millennia ago, there was a time of crisis for the Jewish people in the Persian Empire. The king had signed a royal decree, an edict, that of the Medes and the Persians. It could not be revoked. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. This was to be a financed genocide. Uh, Haman the Agagite offered the king 10,000 talents of silver, an enormous amount, 375 tons of silver, for the privilege of leading this mass genocide. Is that redundant? Genocide is, by nature, mass killing. Well, unbeknownst to Haman and to the king, the queen was a Jewess. Her Persian name was Esther. Her Jewish name was Hadassah. Her uncle Mordecai, upon learning of the decree, urged her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and to plead with him for her people. And her response was, I can't do that. I can't do that. Any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. Mordecai, I can't do this. And then he tells her, I think first with a threat, but then this profound statement, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. God will save his people. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Next Sunday, as we conclude our series on the theology of time, we need to acknowledge that we are where we are because God has put us here. And we are when we are because God has put us here. Remember the story of Barbara Tuckman, uh, writer of well-known historical works, uh, who was giving a talk, I think in the late 60s, early 70s, out at Pomona College, and was railing against the US government, the Vietnam War, and all these things, and just everything that was wrong with this country. And during the Q&A, somebody asked her, uh, Tuckman, if, if you had a choice of when and where you could live, when would that be, where would that be? And she got very quiet and she said, here and now. For all the things that are wrong, this is where God has put us. He has created the world, he has created time, and he has created us, and he has put us here, here and now. 
And we are called, it is the heart of our calling, to redeem time. How do we do that? By walking before God, by reading the signs of the time, and by serving God's purpose in our generation. Let's pray together. Father, it becomes painfully clear to us. We become aware that our view of time is far more chronological, secular, than it is covenantal. We don't see it as gift. We are not thankful for it oftentimes until there's a threat and then, and then suddenly we become thankful for every moment of every day. We are to live as your people. We are to speak as your people. But both of those hinge on the reality that we are to redeem the time. Time for us is like water for fish. It's something that we swim in. We don't really think that much about it. But it is a wonderful gift from you. And as all of your creation has been affected by the fall, it is to be redeemed. And as your people, we are to be partners with you in the process of redeeming your creation, even time. Help us to remember that the past can be redeemed through forgiveness and repentance. The present can be redeemed as we acknowledge that every day is precious. But by your grace next Sunday, may we see in practical terms how that we are to redeem the time. To be your people here and now, because this is where you've put us. No wishing it otherwise can change things. We might wish to have lived in a quieter time, in a more peaceful time, a simpler time. This is where you put us. You created us, you created the world, you created time. You have called us to be your people. May we learn to do the work of redeeming time. I thank you for this time that we could gather to worship you. May your spirit and your grace be with us this day and every day of this week, because every day is precious. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.